Hi everyone, it's Joakim Akren, your host of the Elite Game Developers Podcast, a podcast about the entrepreneurs and investors who are building the games companies of the future. After visiting the Building Better Games podcast, I invited the hosts of that podcast, Aaron Smith and Ben Karsic, on my podcast. The guys run a leadership consultancy called Valorin, and both Aaron and Ben have an extensive background from managing positions at companies like Riot Games. So besides leadership, we talk about a lot of topics related to gaming company building, like product vision, holding off from starting game projects too quickly before you do proper planning, and why are so many ex-Riot people starting these great games companies? All right, Ben, Aaron, welcome to the podcast. Happy to be here. Yeah, thanks for having us. Sure thing. Like we did this episode a while ago where I was visiting your podcast. So it's it's great to get, get you guys on my show as well to talk about topics that are close to the audience that I, I have at Elite Game Developers, where there's a lot of founders doing startups, just getting up and running in their, their startup journey and becoming better leaders. So mm-hmm. there's going to be a lot of good stuff coming on this time. Yeah. Yeah. And we're excited too, because some of the lovely and pointed questions you asked us are things that weirdly, as we've been out there in the consulting word, world, we've tried to downplay because we don't want everyone to feel like aggressively, like we're like the riot guys, we're bringing you the riot way of doing oh, things. Yeah. Yet at the same time, it is a really interesting case study and fun to talk about like what worked there and you know what didn't work. And so we don't often get a, a chance to talk about that that much. So it's really exciting. That's great. Hey, should we do the basic question that I always want to ask is to hear kind of how you got into gaming and to eventually do your own company now with Valerian. Uh, Mm -hmm. Let's start with Ben first. So everybody hears Ben's voice as well here. Origin story. How did I get into gaming? So I was in the military right out of college and I had a computer and systems engineering degree before that. The most proud achievement I had had in my life to that point and the rest of the world may judge me, but this audience will appreciate it, was I was pretty darn good at Halo 2. I was the best best at Halo 2 at the school I was at, which was, you know, a school of 5,000 nerds, so I felt pretty proud of that. And, but after that, when the military, when I was leaving, I looked at the games I was playing and enjoying, and I sent, and it was StarCraft 2 and League of Legends at the time. With StarCraft 2, I knew it was made by Blizzard. With League of Legends, I had no idea who made it. So I looked that up and then I sent resumes out to jobs. I was like, well, I've got some leadership experience. There's no way these people are ever going to get back to me. And Blizzard never did. And Riot Riot pinged me back and I was shocked. And then I started going through this very long interview process. And somehow I kept going from one stage to the next. And I had no idea what was going on. I had no idea. Like I actually asked, like, what should I study? What should I research to try to understand what this job is. People were like, here's some books by Mike Cohn about Scrum or something. And so I did that. And in the next couple of months, I had an onsite, passed the onsite. And suddenly it was like, I'm at, I'm at Riot Games. Holy crap, I'm at Riot Games. Class of Olibear, whatever, December of 2011. So yeah, 
and then then was there for eight years. And one of the things that I found really quickly is that when I'd asked the question, what what is it that I should learn from to be good at my job? Like, where can I go? Nobody had a good answer for me. And so I was constantly like just trying to find stuff and trying to understand and learning. There are a lot of good mentors and things like that. But when I left Riot, that question still is huge for me. What is it that if you're going into game development, whether you're trying to do a startup, whether you're just entering in as like a production coordinator or whatever, if you're becoming a leader in games, where do you go to learn about how game development works and how it's different from software development, which you could fill libraries with the books that have been written about? Where do you go for game development? And the answer is like, well, there's not really much of anything, right? Like, Joachim, you've written a book. It's probably one of very few books that competently describes the situation around that. And you focus on a, on a part that is to your audience, right? How could I solve that problem? And I realized as I was going along in my journey at Riot that, that I cared a lot about that. I cared a lot about not having all the producers in the future not have an answer to that question of like, where do I go and just have to stumble bump their way through every problem that we all hit over and over and over. So that was why when I left Riot, I'd been talking with Aaron, he'd, he'd left about a year before me and was like, let's, let's start a company and let's see if we can help leaders do a better job leading in game development. That's awesome. Aaron, you got into Riot as well. Was that the same same time later? Uh, a couple couple years before. I I grew up really into entertainment in general. Like I loved film and I loved games. And I come from a small country town in California where saying you wanted to be a game developer was something that would get you laughed at. It that wasn't a real job still when I was a kid. And so I went into film, which was the quote unquote practical entertainment thing to get into. And I did that for a year or two in Los Angeles, and I absolutely hated it. And I didn't really get along with many of my peers. And so I found this ad on Craigslist for a small company I had never heard of called Riot Games, who was making a, a game like Dota, I guess, was about what I understood at that time. And I joined as an intern in, in 2009, early, or I think like mid-2009, actually. And yeah, just kind of got swept off my feet, and the rest is history. Amazing. With your company, you have a statement on your website saying better leaders make better games. Can you elaborate on this a bit more? Yeah. Ben and I have thought a lot about what was in the secret sauce for us at Riot. And some of it, I think we think of it in terms of this was very much a Riot culture thing. And some of it, we view it as this is, these are the kinds of things that great leaders do. And one of the things I'll say about Riot is that Riot really focused on the role of leadership as an imperative in a way that I often don't see companies focus on. Like there was a lot of talk about what does it mean to be a leader? There was a lot of talk about, hey, I remember as a, as a little noob getting my feet wet, having Steve Snow come up to me and be like, hey, your job is to be a leader. Remember Mark Merrill telling me your job is to be a leader. Your job isn't to track on things on spreadsheets. It's not to make a project plan. It's not to like, these things are all important, but like at the end of the day, you need to lead these people to making value for players. And that directive was so clear. And I think it eventually started to materialize over years and years of being in that environment and 
creating it ourselves as leaders, like being responsible for training other people to do that, that that was it. It was like, your job is to be a leader. It means something to be a leader and to solve problems, drive results, influence people in a positive direction, keep the player's needs in mind. Like in the back of your head all the time, the player's needs should be your obsession. And then figure out all the tools and the processes once you've got all that other stuff locked down. And so that's, that's really kind of the quintessential lesson is that if we can help people become leaders and help leaders identify tools to become better leaders, that's hopefully going to have an outsized impact on the whole industry. And that's, that's the thing that's motivating us. Yeah. There's leader. Everybody's, been in a situation where leaders have been a hindrance rather than a help. And there are some people who would go so far as to say, if a leader is neutral in value, I'll, I'll take it. I'll take it. Cause it's so, it's so awful to have a leader who's actually not helping, who's only slowing you down. And we see that that's across all industries. That's not just games. That's everywhere. And it's sad because leaders are almost definitionally force multipliers. Like the irony of the statement is that leaders don't actually make anything in some sense. They don't make art. They don't make code. They don't write the code. They don't necessarily do the design. What is it that they do? Well, they're force multipliers. They make everybody more or less efficient. And if you've had a good leader, if you've been led by a good leader, you can see the positive impact those good leaders can have on your ability to do your job and succeed. And so that's what, like when, when I think of better leaders make better games, that's it. It's like, imagine if you had good leaders that were force multipliers across your entire organization. And rather than being something you had to work around and oh, management's making us do blah and it's annoying and pointless and <laughs> it's the waste of time, you know, it's the overhead that allow, but I accept it because I like making video games. Imagine if instead you viewed those leaders as like, these people help us, they help us succeed. They help us find value. That would be amazing. And so if you have those better leaders, I believe you will make better games. I think you guys are onto really something interesting here because, like, I've been spending a lot of time reading Jocko Willing's books, um, mm. which basically are all about, you know, having success by being leader or succeeding. What you want to achieve happens if you work together, and working together happens if if people can step up and lead. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Pretty amazing stuff. I want to come back to to how you picked all of this up whilst you were working at Riot and now that you've been working with the, on your own company. But there was some topics that we were going through when we were sending emails and back and forth, this kind of conversation about what we should be talking about. And these were kind of the topics that you guys mentioned that were close to heart. So first off was this, the, the idea of the product vision. Mm-hmm. Why does that matter? Aaron, you take this one first. <laughs> so, you know, that what's interesting about some of those topics was that the, what came to mind for us, so Kim was like, we're working with all these different game companies now, and we're starting to see these patterns. We're starting to see like the same kinds of issues coming up over and over again. And one of them is, product vision, why it matters is, I think, you know, similar to leaders being sort of like full force multipliers, I actually view the product vision as a force multiplier when it comes to focus. And so it's Mm -hmm. like, if, if you know who your audience is 
and you know the fundamental, dare I say, spiritual problem you're trying to solve. Like I've seen some great pitches just randomly in the last year or two where the person's just like so clear about like they paint this picture of the market that they're going to and the players that are just waiting in the wings to play this game that don't have a place to go right now. And it's like, if you can paint that picture internally for all your people, they can mostly figure out what needs to be done on their own. And I think we fundamentally believe that that just cuts away so much waste before you even get started working. Like every micro decision that every developer is making in the pit every day is informed with that picture, the picture we're all trying to paint in the background. And I, I, I think I love that idea. It's almost romantic to me because it, it's clarity. And, and when we see, we see so many companies spending 20, 30, 40, 50 million dollars with a hundred plus people and Jira projects up the wazoo and backlogs and tasks moving around and no one can communicate and everything just, it's stressful and everyone thinks, and it's so, and it's, you just look at that system and you're like, there's so much waste in this system. Like I bet 50% of this work doesn't actually need to be done, but you can never know the difference if you don't have that picture guiding you in the background. And we realize and recognize repeatedly that leaders are often not trained to understand and paint that picture and communicate it to others. And so that's a real focus for us when we're working with, with companies and when we're working with leaders is to like get them into thinking about that. Like what is the picture? Who is the audience? What is the value? Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's a, uh, you're, a game is an experience and you want the experience to be engaging. A plan is not an experience. A plan is not value. Ideally, it's a way to get to value. If you have a product vision clearly, you can look at a plan and say, well, maybe we don't need to do these things. And it's one of the most valuable things a leader can do because there's a set of things like there's the, the challenge with work is that there's always more things you could do or there's more things to do than you could ever do. And so the one of the hardest things is not figuring out like, well, is this valuable? It's what's the most valuable for the experience and audience that I'm trying to create and reach. If you can get to those people with as little work as possible, that's what you should try to do. And I think so often we fall back, whether it's a, whether we see this in startups or we'll go in and it'll be like, hey, what's your product vision? And someone will have like a 96 page design doc. I'm like, that's not a product vision. Your whole company hasn't all read that, most likely. And certainly if they had, it's probably a bunch of features listed out. Like you're going to do this, then you're going to do this, then you're going to do this, then you're going to do this. No. What's the vision? Why would someone play your game? Why do you think they would? You're going to be wrong with a lot of it, especially early on and especially in a startup world. Like it's going to, it's most likely wrong in, in a ton of ways. That's okay. The faster you can get to what you think is your core experience and the faster you can get that in front of your real audience, you will start learning, okay, this is what we think it is. And then everything Aaron said, it's like decision-making. It's decision-making top to bottom in your org. If everybody understands the product vision, then everybody can make better decisions moment to moment. And by the way, again, I, I can't emphasize enough, one of the most important decisions you want everybody in your company able to make is to choose not to do something that takes mm-hmm. time. Mm-hmm. Because that like... If you can do make 20% of your backlog or 20%, if you can complete 20% of the plan and actually get 80% of the value, you want to do that. The challenge is always you 
it's hard to know up front which is the right 20%. And that's where you have to learn a lot. But the product vision helps with all of that. Yeah, I completely agree with this. It's a system and by crystallization of something that every every game studio should think about when they're doing a game. It's like, what is the, the vision for the product? It's even like you're going and pitching something. I, like, I don't usually yeah. see a product vision. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, you, when you were talking to us on, on our podcast, you talked about values and shared mm-hmm. values. They do a lot of the same thing. They yeah. help you. Yeah. They simplify decision-making. Well, our values are this, which means that these options are not on the table for us. They, they, yeah. you know, they contradict our values. Instead, we're going to do this. And if everybody knows that, man, it makes those cultural decisions and the tough challenges that you're going to face a lot simpler in a lot of ways. Mm. Yeah, that, that's definitely important. Can you talk more about the pros of postponing the mindset of this quick execution and going into production too early? Like <laughs> if you can postpone that, what, what, are, what are the benefits there? I only, I only laugh because I were so now familiar with the, just like the impulse. There's an impulse there in our industry. Yeah. I think I don't think I completely understood how strong the impulse was until we started doing this thing out on our own. There, there's just like, how quickly can we get into production? How quickly can we get to the point where we've got the roadmaps and the Gantt charts? And it's like, it's like, it's almost like there's a, there. it's like a moths to a flame, you know? I love the question, how do we postpone that? Because that's actually what I think we should do. Is yeah. How do we push that off as quickly as possible? And one of the things we try to do is we try to refocus uh, companies away from things like work and plans and tasks and features. And we try to refocus them on things like play tests, play test the game, play the game, try the game, find the fun part, talk about the game. Once you made a thing, get everyone together and talk about it. How does it feel? Does it, is it seem like it's going in the right direction? What is the right direction? Like, again, reorient away from putting your head down, checking things off of a list and focus yourself more on which direction are we trying to go? Are we, is this experiment successful? What did we learn from this experiment? Like run experiments. Like one of the things Ben and I often talk to R&D teams about is don't use your measure of success as how much work you're getting done. That's the danger for you. Use your measure of success by how many things you're learning about your hypothesis, how many things you're learning about what you think the game is needs to be or should be or will end up being or whatever. So learning, like seriously, you have a sprint board, what you're putting up your goal for this two weeks, make the goal a question. This is the question we have. And so we want to do work that validates or invalidates this thesis we have about what's fun. And then you just, if you need to throw it all away. That's another thing I'd say, get comfortable throwing stuff away. If you get, not because you necessarily should throw things away, but I see like companies building like platform level features and infrastructure and stuff from like day one. And, And it's not that that's bad to think ahead. It's that the more things you make that you're scared to throw away, the more you're now sticking yourself and you're entrenching yourself and you're attaching yourself to things you may not actually need. Yeah. Yeah, and we see a, that all the time. And so it's there, like, don't hire this like core tech team that's going to build all this fancy stuff when you're still trying to figure out what your game is. Don't do that. Yeah. Yeah. I've seen that happen. <laughs> there, of the of the companies 
I can think of three examples where when we talked to them, they were like, well, where are you in development? And one, the question is almost always, well, parts of it are in production and parts of it are in pre-production and parts of it are like, and you know, they'll be like, we've seen the full range almost where it's like, yeah, parts of the game are in ideation, parts are in prototyping or pre-production parts of it, you know, however you define those things. And game companies that have told us we're in production, then we'll ask, okay, what's the game? And they'll be like, well, we don't really know. Okay. That's, that's telling. Why are you in production then? Why, why do you think you're in production if you don't know what the game is? And a lot of times it's because the timeline insisted that we should be in production now. Yes. And by the way, this is also a call out to, and it's so hard, right? If you're an investor and you're investing in a startup, recognize that you create some of the incentives that drive this negative behavior. Mm -hmm. If you're not careful and you aren't, you aren't doing it deliberately, you're trying to be helpful. You're trying to set constraints and like, say, I want to see this progress by this time. You have to make calls. Do I want to continue to invest? All these different things. You know more about that space than I do, but that company, that game startup might feel that as pressure. Like I've got to get to the next phase. If I don't get to the next phase, then I haven't made it. I haven't made it. I haven't made it. And so often we see teams that are, you know, they're, they're in prototyping. Honestly, we, Aaron and I would say they're in prototyping because they haven't figured out their core game loop. But they want to tell people they're in production, and that meet that implies things about the plan that they have and the 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 surety of their timelines and like all this stuff. And it gets in also the way. their burn rate too. We see a oh lot my of gosh, like insane yeah. burn rates that are like production level mm -hmm. burn rates. And mm -hmm. it's like you guys should have like twelve people just like sitting in a room together. Like, why do you have all yeah. hundred? That's crazy. Yeah, yeah. There was so, yeah, there was one startup that went from like eight nine people to thirty because they wanted to, to make the game better quickly as they had just raised money. And they, they got 20 people in. But what happened was everybody was onboarding everybody, like, like basically yes. for, for oh, five yeah. months. Yeah. And nothing happened for five yeah. months. And then all of a sudden, their runway was basically over. Yes. Oh, that, and it's so costly. By the way, if you're, if you're out there and you're listening to this and you're one of if you've worked with Aaron and I, and you think like, oh no, Aaron and Ben are talking about me. We're not just talking about you. Don't worry. Like maybe we are. And if you think that great self-awareness, but like it's, you're not alone <laughs> so many times, right? Yes. Like, yeah. Yeah. So true. Uh, another topic that we were discussing about is this growth mindset. Like how do you, how do you think an outside person, a coach, mentor, investor, whoever can help a game developer, team, founders mm -hmm. develop a growth mindset to become people who are interested in learning? Or if they already have acquired the taste for knowing what they don't know, how do they take that to the next level? I mean, Carol, like the, the original author of this idea, she says, in her book, she says the best way to get somebody to move towards a growth mindset is just to let them know that a growth mindset exists. Mm. And so actually it's one of those weird things. That's kind of nice because you can just teach somebody what a growth mindset looks like, even on paper. And it just, you've just added value immediately because they'll be like, Oh, okay. I, I understand what this looks like now. Another thing that Ben and I talk a lot about, which is guidance we give to leaders is become comfortable with uncertainty yourself because you will be modeling behaviors every single day that your team will see. And if you are very, very, very uncomfortable with uncertainty, if you respond to uncertainty with panic, with aggression, with frustration, then your team is going to be taught to respond to uncertainty as if it's a hostile thing. 
And this sounds a little bit lofty and philosophical, but it really matters because we so often see a management reaction to uncertainty, which is, hey, we don't know what question we need to ask. We don't know what the, this part of the core, core game loop is going to look like. We don't know this thing. And so some person thinking through a management lens comes in and says, we need to lock this down now. We need to make a plan. I need to see the tasks. I want the estimates. And it's like that forces people to just come up with stuff, yeah. whether it's right or wrong. And, and so a leader needs to have the wherewithal and the centeredness, frankly, to be able to say, okay, we don't know the answers to these questions. Team, come together. Let's talk about how we answer these questions. What, like, what do we need to do to explore this deeper? Where, how do we get closer to clarity? What's the big step we can take? One big step we can take to get closer to clarity. Leaders who are comfortable with that and don't just immediately need your clock everything down are incredibly potent tools to help teams develop a growth mindset. Yeah. And the only thing I would add to that, because that's basic, that's so spot on, is model it. Say, I don't know. Yeah. When you don't know. And make that something that's safe and comfortable for everybody else to say. Be comfortable with the conflict and the disagreement that is part of your organization. And, and in some sense, celebrate that when it occurs in a healthy way. Because, yeah, you, as leaders, you know, and you, you talked specifically about as an outside coach, mentor, or friend, a lot of it's celebrating the right thing, celebrating the effort people put into something, celebrate their engaging with challenges that they don't understand, celebrate the failures and like what mm -hmm. they learned. Like, I don't know, I'm sure Supercell gets referenced a lot, but they from the outside, I haven't worked with them. It seems like they've managed to create a culture where failure is actually celebrated. And, and it's like, we, you know, Hey, we gave you a hard timeline and you didn't get where you were supposed to go. And so it failed. And now you're going to tell us all why. And this, no one's going to get like fired because they didn't perform. They didn't have all the confidence that they should have had to be driving forward, even though they actually didn't know anything. It was okay that this didn't work. It was okay that you couldn't figure it out. Making video games is really, really hard. And it, and there's it, there's just, you have to be able to accept that difficulty. Like it's not going to work every time. And that doesn't mean that your people were bad. Yeah. One of the, the key aspects that I think a lot about is like getting feedback, like great feedback to develop. I don't get enough feedback nowadays because I'm so, so much a solo a guy doing my projects and everything. So it, it feels like that's something that like, if I would be doing another startup, I would definitely set up like a bunch of feedback sessions and everything where we're constantly talking about things that shouldn't be left unsaid. Yeah. You know? And yeah. that what you just described there, when I hear that too, I, I know that there's people that if they were in that environment would be like, but this is all overhead right? We should mm. all be just doing work. Why aren't we all doing work? Instead, we're sure. talking to each other. And like, you know, there, there is an extreme version of that that would be bad, but I think we're so far away from that generally in the industry. We're so far on the like, no, nah, don't worry about giving the feedback. Just, just go back and do work. Like just get work harder. If we work, if we all work hard enough, it'll come out the other side. Right. And it's like, no, it won't. You're way better off pausing. Something will come out the other side. Something will come out the other side. A lot of work will come out the other side, but you know, actually taking 20% of your day to give feedback about the product, about each other, about the system, about the culture, about the audience. Yeah. 
I actually think what you just mentioned there, Joachim, about feedback is also another thing that adds to that growth mindset culture. Like if feedback becomes Mm -hmm. a very comfortable thing that people just do all the time, it's this input that you have as a human being and as a professional that trains you to think, hey, there's always something I can improve on. There's always something I can work on. And that that becomes a very non-threatening idea. And if that for everyone at your company, if that's a non-threatening idea, you've just unlocked something really, really powerful. I I hate to say it. One of the things we see a lot nowadays is an over-celebration of a culture of kindness. And it's not to say that kindness is a bad thing. It's an awesome thing. It's an amazing thing. But usually when people say, hey, we're really nice to each other here, when people are describing their culture, we come to find that one of the aspects is that we try to avoid saying anything critical or negative at all because we don't mm-hmm. want to hurt anyone's feelings. And again, this is a very controversial topic these days, but like I actually think that it is you want to build a resilience inside of your organization for people to be able to speak their minds to each other. And so they can work together better because that's also a great growth factor for your people too. Yeah. Like that actually like leads me to to the next thing I wanted to ask you about is like an ideal games company culture. Like I think there there are aspects that all of us sort of know what goes into the ideal culture, but like does it change from when when it's like six six to eight people in in a room to going to a hundred, two hundred, like three hundred? What do you think about this ideal games company culture? I think it does change. And it's it's about figuring out which parts change and which parts don't. And when I hear the phrase ideal culture, part of me is like, I don't, I don't know if that exists. And I'm not like I think that there are some things that are generically true, right? Your culture should embrace honesty, you know, and but it's almost like it's at the moral level right? Like don't be mean to each other, you know, don't lie to each other. Don't hurt each other, whatever outside of those sort of core ideas though. I think that there's, there's different types of cultures depending on the people and depending on the product and depending on where you're trying to go at one that I think, you know, Aaron and I always have to keep an eye on. We worked at riot riot was a game as a service a lot of the system and the culture that emerged was based around like, Hey, how do we respond to a game as a service? If you're developing a new game, and this was something riot struggled with when they, when we, when we spun up R and D projects, the identical culture didn't work in some sense. And, and it's not that there weren't some things that would bridge the gap. There were, you know, like I said, things like honesty and transparency, right? was big on feedback. I think a lot of that was really great, but there are other aspects of culture about like how quickly you need to respond to things that happen. And and a lot of the, a lot of stuff, like how close do you have to be to your audience? How much work do you have to put in to be close to your audience? How much of a focus do you need to have on internal feedback? Well, if your game's not live, you need to have a massive focus on internal feedback about your product. But if your game's live, you're getting so much feedback your systems are, and your culture is more about how do we receive that feedback from a giant audience well, or from the people that are playing our game. In League's case, it was a huge group of people that we could learn from. So I think it does evolve. I think it matures. And I think it's, it's really hard to do that well. Like it's unbelievably hard yeah, to maintain to the point a culture. Where we, some, we sometimes question 
if it's at all possible to maintain <laughs> that past a certain mm -hmm. point, because right. it's easy to get discouraged when you see how much of a struggle it is, especially once a company reaches a certain size, you know? Yeah. And I, <clears throat> one thing, one thing too, it's, there's a lot of complexity to this. So you, uh, I love that you asked about scale because like I've spent a lot of time thinking about how this scales and it's highly complex. And I think a lot of, since a lot of companies, I think, still view their culture as like the five, the list of five pillars that they have up on the wall or that they put as the first slide in the slide deck. I think that it's not a great recipe for understanding how to scale. And one of the things you mentioned, actually, in an article you wrote recently that I absolutely loved and Ben and I talk about all the time is that your culture is actually just a bucket of all the behaviors that people are doing every day. That's, that is at the end, the simplest definition of culture. It's like, what are people actually doing? How are they actually acting when they're working every day? That's your culture. And so if you think about it in those terms, you realize that scaling takes on a different form and you start to think of things like, well, how many like cultural icons or cultural leaders do we have that are actually out there modeling behavior in their respective parts of the company? Because one thing I think a lot of companies don't think about is they're scaling and Riot struggled a lot with this. It's like, how do you need enough of those people? Like maybe you need a ratio of one to 10 or one to 20, like somebody who's like a cultural champion so that you can put them in a section of the company and you can make sure that your behaviors don't stray too far from the core ideals. And this, this is really, really, really challenging to do because you have to be able to identify those people. You have to know enough about actually what your desired behaviors are to be able to even map that against future hires. So like, I think a lot of companies, again, they don't think about what are good behaviors and what are anti-pattern behaviors. They never actually think about culture in those terms. And so the only way they can really identify those people are just by going, well, this person feels like us. This person seems to get it, but it's, 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 it's a whole different thing to break that down and understand that. And that that's a huge area of opportunity, I think, for our whole industry is for leaders to sit down and go, what is a good behavior? Like, let's take this mock situation. How would an ideal leader in our culture respond to this situation? Like, what kinds of behaviors would they exhibit? And that's a much tougher thing. And I also want to add one thing, too, which is that all of this stuff is double-edged sword. Yeah. Like, Riot has been under a lot of fire in the last couple of years for certain things that I look back on and I go, that's so interesting that people have viewed that in from a completely different perspective, because an example is like riot leadership had a very strong bias to action, like to be idle and to like sit around and think about stuff all day was not really like, that was not seen as a good thing. It was like, you needed to move forward. You needed to create movement. You needed to create momentum. Like, because you couldn't sit on your hands while players needed something from you, right? And I think this is a very positive aspect of this. But what you might not think about is like, okay, well, if you get enough leaders acting like that every day, what if there's somebody who is more thoughtful, who does need a couple more minutes to process their thoughts? Are they now seen as bad? Are they left out of the meeting? Does anyone ask them what they think? Or do they just keep getting passed over, over and over again? And what happens if that person's got the right answer? So like, there, every cultural aspect is a double-edged sword. And so that's also one of the dangers of just finding people that you really like 
and having them model without actually writing down what behaviors you like from them because you'll get all of their good qualities and all of their bad qualities too, right? Like maybe they are very action-oriented and biased to action, but maybe they're also kind of aggressive and condescending sometimes. Hmm. You know? Interesting. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, you're right. Hey, I, I really want to have a riot now a bit with you guys because it's such a fascinating company. I think one of the, the most interesting gaming companies out there. I, I know so much about Supercell and like the culture and, and the work ha- that happens there to create such an awesome game. I really wanted to hear from you guys, like what is in the tap water at Riot? Yeah. <laughs> like why is Riot such a great place to develop yourself in gaming? That's that's interesting. Like there's so many new startups coming up that are ex-Riot mm-hmm. founders. What do you think is going on there? What has happened over the last 15 years that it has been such an amazing place? Yeah, Ben and I spent a lot of time talking about this because it, you know, and, and of course we have our biases. So, you know, I think in some respects, Ben and I will always be what we call red-blooded rioters. It's, you know, so, you know, keep that in mind, of course, but one, one of the things I, I really think it, a lot of it does come back to that leadership thing we were talking about earlier. I, I feel so thankful, really, truly to the, to the universe for being able to get my feet wet and learn how to be a operational leader and a producer, whatever you want to call it in, at Riot, because I had leaders that to this day that I still am so thankful for and respect coming to me and teaching me how to lead, teaching me how to see the big picture, teaching me how to, what it means to be player focused. And again, like there was a lot of days where I had to learn from scratch, how to like make Excel do this thing I needed to do for my project plan. And no one was there to teach me how to do it. I was completely on my own, but I'm so glad that Riot focused on those other things and didn't over-focus on like, run your JIRA project perfectly. And I think that that's why you're seeing a lot of people coming out of Riot going and starting their own companies because they they have that strategic view. They are player focused. They deeply love games and they deeply love players, I think, truly, um, and want to serve them. And I think that they think of themselves as leaders and they want to lead something. They want to make changes. They want to do something new. They want to introduce a new idea. I think that like I, it makes so much sense to me when I see rioters going on to become entrepreneurs. And I, I really think riot generates entrepreneurs in many respects. And I think so that, I think that's part of what's in the tap water. Yeah. So. For, for me, I, I often look at the hiring, you know, and I know that's talked about a lot. Riot had a lot of really good people always had a lot of really still do have a lot of really good people that work there like Aaron and I still know tons of quality people working at Riot fantastic game developers good producers like they they're they it's a funny question because when I think about it there's a lot of things at Riot I I didn't have exposure to that I had exposure to when I was like let's say doing logistics in the military P&L was not a big deal for most of my time at Riot there was almost this <laughs> assumption that Lee is so successful money isn't a problem and that's a very unique and strange place to be and most games and, and startups and especially have no, they can't think it that way. Can't be like, yeah, just forget the money. It's coming in every month. Don't worry about it. Like as long as the game doesn't topple over and we've got a whole bunch of people making sure that doesn't happen, we'll, we'll still have money. Let's keep going. And so a lot of the, it's interesting. There's a lot of the process stuff and the, the nuts and bolts that actually you almost skipped, but 
what you got exposure to, to Aaron's point was what does it mean to actually lead to focus? Well, to be value focused and oriented, to be trying to create the best experience you can. And their hiring was generally speaking, phenomenal. And like, obviously there were problems inside the company. There's problems in every company. There were some big ones in Riot, but the quality of the people that I was surrounded by was so high that when I, when I think about some of those people and I think about them going and doing just about anything, I'm like, yeah, they're probably going to do pretty well. And it's not because, you know, they're the smartest or the best or whatever. It's because like, they know how to learn and they know how to focus on a, a goal. They know how to find an audience. They know how to really think about what matters hard and prioritize their own life and, and their team's work and that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think it was, there's a lot of really quality people there. And, and so, and then there's also the piece of, you know, you asked like, why are, you know, these companies getting so many X riders forming companies? Well, because Riot has a certain prestige in the industry because of their success. And so when people leave and they say, hi, I'd like to make a startup, I think investors are thinking to themselves, well, shoot, you've operated a very successful company. If you learned something there, maybe that increases the odds of you being successful somewhere else. And as you know, if you're an investor, I don't think that's a dumb thing to do. I think you see the same thing with uh, startups that form out of Blizzard or Bungie or things like that. But but yeah, I think a lot a lot of a lot of X writers have formed startups in like the last few years. Actually, Aaron and I are sometimes shocked. It's just like, oh my gosh, we have so many friends that have founded game companies. Yeah, amazing. Like, I wanted to still ask a question about Riot. As a company like that goes into the future, how do they uphold the culture that got them where they had the success and everything went so well? How do they make sure? that they can evolve regarding the needs that come up and not go into a situation where everything starts falling apart? That's that's the million oh, dollar question. It, it is the million dollar question. And I also <laughs> I also think out of all the questions you asked, Joachim, this is the one that puts Ben and I probably in the closest area where it's like, I feel bad because this is, this is where my criticism level of Riot and how it's operating today starts to go up quite a bit too. And I, and it hurts me to say that, like, I, I, it's such a bizarre thing. Like it hurt, it actually hurts me as a human to criticize Riot because I feel like a piece of me is always going to be there. But I, as Riot, I mean, Riot's huge now. I, I don't even know what it is. It's got to be four or five, 6,000, something crazy. I mean, there's do- over a dozen offices all around the world. It's, it's massive global footprint. And then you've got like business units now that are like outside of direct games like esports and now like arcane just won what three or four emmys so now we're making tv shows it's like we're like it's in good ones too i know good ones and it's insane it's just like i don't even i don't even think i'm fully capable of wrapping my head as a person who's no longer there completely around like what the reality is for rioters today and for for riot leadership now but I, uh, the only answer I can honestly give you about like, how do you stop that from falling apart is I don't really know. There are some things I know are true. One of them is that culture is in a constant state of decay. And if you don't provide active stewardship of it at every single level of leadership at the company, eventually you will wake up one day and, and it will be gone. And you will not know what happened. And I know that that sounds foreboding and scary and cryptic, but it's true. The second thing I would say is that, again, you really need to make sure to have people in your organization that are modeling the behaviors that you look back at and you say, this is what it really means to be a super seller or a rioter or a blizzarder or 
whatever. This person exemplifies that and you need to break that down into something digestible that people that can be teachable. And then you need to find more people that represent that. Yeah. And, and this is where accountability comes in a lot too. Like, I think it's very complex to lead. It's very complex to hold accountability and to set expectations and negotiate accountability. One thing I will say is if people start getting rewarded for the wrong things or punished for the wrong things, you can go down a very dangerous path very quickly. Mm -hmm. If people start getting punished for things like speaking up in front of the wrong people, or they start getting punished for things like spending maybe a little bit too much money on what was a good bet, but they still failed. Or they get punished for things like saying something not in the perfect way when they were giving feedback. Like maybe it's a coachable experience, but like, Again, you need to provide latitude for that so people grow because you don't want the fear of speaking to be what drives people's behavior. Similarly speaking, if somebody is seen to be failing over and over and over and over again with no accountability and they keep seeming to get rewarded, that also sends another message. So like these things are really important for leaders to understand because while it may not seem like a big deal to you, these one-off cases from a senior leadership perspective, Every single one of these events is broadcasting a reality to the rest of the organization that everyone else sees, and they are taking cues from it. So again, these little things are having force multiplicative effects in your culture, and it's really important. And again, these are things that just slip. They just happen as you scale and you don't necessarily note it, notice it. But like yeah. every action that you take, especially when it's a leader to leader action, has a ripple effect throughout the entire culture of your company. And there's an awareness there and a sensitivity that leaders need to have to that reality, I think, as they scale. Yeah. the Like I said, it's a million dollar question because we don't know. The one thing I would say is if you're scaling fast, you probably aren't putting as much attention into this as you should be. And that's, it's, it's like anything. If you don't maintain it, you know, Aaron said cultural entropy, but like everything experiences entropy. There's skills entropy. Everything is in a constant state of decay. Are you fighting that decay? Because if you are not exerting effort, then that decay is happening. Mm -hmm. And so exert effort and try to keep an eye on what behaviors you see, because that is your culture. And when you start seeing them going sideways, you can point it out, but you can also go, why? Why am I seeing that counter behavior? Um, and how do I create an environment? Like if you're the CEO or, or like a, on a C-level of a startup and suddenly you're exploding, like your game has got big and you're now growing suddenly and you start seeing something and you're like, wait a minute, that doesn't seem like who we want to be. Don't go, oh, well, I have other things to do. Let me go handle, handle my job. That is your job. That is the most important part of a leader's job is the maintenance of that culture. That blows away everything else that you're doing. And especially in the case where you have a successful game and a successful product, because I'll be honest, like I have so much respect for Riot in so many ways. And one of them was that they put a lot of, I haven't been there in two and a half years, so I don't know what, what it looks like today. But for the eight years I was there, they actually put a lot of effort into the culture, mm -hmm. constantly trying to redo the values and, and things like that. And even when, you know, I'll reference it, the Kotaku article came out, I can say, I, I don't agree with everything Riot did. I obviously don't agree with the wrong, uh, like the moral wrong that, that occurred to cause that Kotaku article to be written. But they they tried really hard to go like, how do we root this out? And I think they took culture very seriously. And so I, I say that to say, even cultures that are taking it very seriously, it's so hard. It's so hard. So uh, 
but I think it, I think even though it's so hard, like I said before, video games are really hard. This is a fight worth fighting to maintain your culture, to make great, a great game. Like these are fights worth fighting and, and just don't, don't ever get the idea that it's not your job. If you're a leader, it is your job, um, both to make a great game and to have a great culture. Yeah. And I would say too, that if you're a leader and you're worried about the time and effort investment in things like product vision and culture, the way I would describe the impact of you investing in these places is for every win, every small win that you get when it comes to product vision and culture is a thousand decisions that you will never have to make and a thousand problems that you will never have. I really believe that. So more, more so, and this is why when we work with companies, we focus so much on culture and vision is because we know that if you can build a solid foundation there, you're eliminating most of the really difficult work you're going to have to do in the future because you distribute that load throughout your entire company in a way that's like really profoundly positive and honestly makes those people's jobs way more fun. Yeah. They're empowered. They have agency. They can, they know how to operate. They can make decisions. Better leaders make better games. Yeah, Yeah. that's right. (laughs) Final questions for you. What's your favorite book and why? Oh yeah. So mine's, so I'm like, Aside from games, this is super weird. I'm like big into macro, like macroeconomics, geopolitics, things like this. A life-changing book for me was a book called The Fourth Turning, which really t- kind of is a is a, a lens over social demography that essentially asserts that humanity operates in centennial cycles, 100-year cycles. It's a it's a lot more nuanced than that. So go read it if you're interested. But what it can do, what it does is it puts a frame over generational patterns going back like 500 years in Western society and then predicts what the next like 100 or 200 years are going to look like. And it's really cool. And like, so this book coined the term millennials. So like, for example, we refer to this generation as millennials originally came from Howe and Strauss, the guys who wrote that book. So really cool book if you're into that sort of thing. Yeah. Nice. For me. So Job and Ecclesiastes in the Bible, those are two that are huge for me because they they teach you, I think, how to relate to reality and the divine and who you are in relationship to that. And and it is funny because they're often people read those two books. I don't know if you're familiar with them, but but they're they're in the Old Testament and they're very like most people find them very depressing. You know, it's like <laughs> vanity, vanity, all is vanity. But there's a lot in there, I think, to help you understand, like be careful where you try to find meaning. And and I think that that's very true for people more and more true over time, actually, like be careful where you try to find meaning in life. Outside of that, I think the Silmarillion, I love Tolkien. I love so much of what what Tolkien wrote and I love Middle Earth. And the Silmarillion is this grand, like it. it it's funny and it's at its worst, it's a very boring historical like description of trees and mountains and stuff. But at its best, it's this amazing story about the decline of the elves like and there's a sadness there but also the the rise of the of humanity and and the fact that humans unlike elves and dwarves and and hobbits and things in Tolkien's world humans men, men as he calls them men can be good or bad and what does that mean and how do we relate to that and so as so, the elves which are almost purely good in in an in an absolute sense they're almost purely good they make mistakes and they can become arrogant and you know 
do evil things, but they're generally good. But men are like these wild cards. And I think that's something like Solzhenitsyn said, the, the line between good and evil cuts through the heart of every man or something. I'm paraphrasing that slightly, but like the Silmarillion tells that same story. And as the good, the elves, the good of the elves declines in, in over the ages, you see men and it's like, what's going to happen? And Tolkien never answers that question. This um, is which is kind very cool. long-winded way of saying Amazon's ruining his life right now. So. That's it. <laughs> the best place. I watched a few episodes. Yeah. Um, not, not happy. They're, they're getting my money in the book side. So. <laughs> yeah. Like it's, they're, they're winning. Yeah. 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 Great. These are really good ones. Do you guys have a story that has shaped you and how you approach your work today? So, so many. There's two that come to mind for me. In 2004, I was at college. I was in ROTC, Reserve Officer Training Corps, to become an officer. Another cadet was in the program with me. We were walking back from PT early in the morning, and I was doing something I did a lot, which was complaining. And guy named guy's name is Ron Shepard. Super cool guy, but he just he just tell you what he thought. And he was a peer of mine, and I'm, I'm complaining away. And he said, you know, Ben, you complain a lot. And I think I immediately started complaining about that and then kept <laughs> complaining. But it stuck with me. And over the course of the next days, weeks, and months, it completely shifted how I related to the world because he was right. I was complaining a lot and I was complaining to fit in. I was complaining to do a lot of things. What complaining allowed me not to do is take responsibility for my own life. Um, it allowed me to offload that to everything else. I could complain about everything else in life and I didn't have to take any accountability for the situations I was in. So that that was one that was huge. Second one was when I left the military, I asked one of my, I was an officer. So I was an officer in charge or an OIC in charge of a shop. There was a non-commissioned officer who I worked with, who was the, the NCOIC of my shop for much of my time in Afghanistan. And she said something to me. I asked her, I can't remember if I asked her feedback or how it came up in the conversation, but she, she basically said, sir, the soldiers in your shop were terrified of you. And I was really shocked by that to the point where I didn't actually go into it with her at the time, but I thought about it. But she, I mean, she doubled down on it when I was like, really? And she was like, sir, like, and I thought about why, and I thought about how I'd shown up. And I thought also about how I never wanted to be that. I never wanted to have soldiers terrified of me. And there's a bunch of reasons why I speculate that was the case. I think it, I was very driven to getting the work done. I was very focused. I didn't like, if they messed up, I'd just take the work away from them. I wouldn't even, I wouldn't punish them, but I was sort of this enigmatic, quiet figure in some sense, who was just like, he just did stuff. And if we did stuff wrong, it seemed like he didn't like it. And he didn't, I didn't relate to them a lot. Like the NCO that I had, they kind of, and this is very normal. They handled the soldiers, like the privates and things like that. That's their job. But I never wanted to be, I never wanted that to be true. And I was sad to hear it. And so from that point forward, I tried to shift. So those are two. One, stop complaining, take accountability for your own life. Two, be careful about how you relate to other people because it's very easy for something that you don't want to happen to happen. You know, I don't yeah, want people yeah. to be terrified of me professionally. Yeah. yeah. Really good ones. Aaron. Uh, for me, and I'll, I'll name drop Steve Snow again, because he was a, he was a very important mentor of mine early on at Riot. And there was a really difficult period of time I went through about a year or two in when I was, you know, fully salaried and growing as a junior producer. And I could tell that Steve was struggling with me, was, was feeling disappointed in my performance at the time for, for a brief window there. And I, and, and he wasn't the only one. And I, and I remember being frustrated by that and not understanding why 
I was being perceived as struggling performance-wise. I was doing so much work. I had everything organized. I had all the plans. I had like, everything was meticulous. I was working crazy hours. <clears throat> and I remember Steve would come up to me and he would ask me high-level questions, strategic questions about how the team was doing. Like, what's the product direction? What's the, what are the priorities? Have you talked to the stakeholders? What do they say? Like strategic things. And I, I remember just being paralyzed and not having the answers to those questions and always trying to be like, but look, Steve, all the work's getting done and all the tasks are handled. And, and I remember him being frustrated with those interactions. And, and one day we sat down and he said, Aaron, what happened? To, he asked me the question. He said, Aaron, what happened to you? You used to be fearless. And I had a moment of reflection there where I'm like, well, when I used to be fearless. Well, he's, he's referring to when I was an intern. Like, how was I more fearless as a guy that was getting like Mark Merrill's sandwiches and coffee than I am now as a producer? Like I'm more validated than I've ever been before. So why have I become so fearful? And I think I, I woke up to a reality about life and work, which is that a lot of what motivates us can be fear of losing what we have. And I think that one of the things we have to be really careful about as we grow and we have more things and we have more people and stuff is not to sacrifice who we are and what's important and lose our voice in our need to try to preserve and protect all the stuff we have, all the things we have. Like this fear of loss becomes overwhelming. This fear of, you know, moving back a step is overwhelming. But I, I honestly think life in, in its, at its very core is one as two steps forward, one step back probably at its best. Mm -hmm. So, you know, and I, I had a wake up call there where it's like, Steve was trying to figure out why I was not leading anymore. That was the thing. Yeah. That was the question he was asking. He's like, Aaron, you're not leading. You're out, you're doing a bunch of work, but you're not leading. What happened? What changed? And I was trying to become indispensable to the company by getting so much work done so that I couldn't possibly be fired. That was what the mentality now, as I look back, but I mm -hmm. wasn't actually leading. He wanted to trust that when he came back and asked me those questions that I knew that he did, all he needed to know was that I had it under control strategically so that he could go focus on other things. And when I didn't have the answers to those questions, it was showing him that I didn't actually know what I was doing, that I wasn't actually, I was losing the big picture for, I was losing the forest for the trees basically. And so that, that was a really big turning point for me in my career where I was with the two takeaways I took is like leading is more important than doing work. It really is. And yeah. two, don't ever become so fearful of loss that you allow it to drive your behavior. Mm. Amazing. Hey guys, I wanted to finish off by like sending people your way. So what's the best way for people to get in contact with you and hear more about like what you're up to nowadays? I think LinkedIn is probably, I, I feel like that's the wrong answer. That's a weird answer. But I feel like LinkedIn is actually the best for me. I'm like, when I get through all my lead generator spam, I'll definitely respond yeah. to your message. Yeah. <laughs> Does your company need outsourcing help? Yes, <laughs> always. Yeah. yeah, LinkedIn's a good one. I think you can email us pretty much anytime at uh, mm -hmm. info, info at valarinconsulting.com. And if you just want to chat, like Ben and I, I mean, even aside from anything we're doing professionally, like we'd love to just hear what people are struggling with and their victories and their defeats and 
and video games because you know it really is like this is really about us trying to help and make an impact because we love this industry and we love players and we love games so yeah yeah and check out our uh, podcast if you're interested we yeah. we are less focused on the entrepreneurial startup space we do more leaders in game dev generally as our focus and that but it's building better games you can find it on most major platforms out there and uh, yeah we'd love to hear what you think of it if you think it's great if you think we're missing the mark whatever it is we we love your feedback we're we're excited to make it and we're hoping that it's helping fill some of that void in like what does it mean to be a leader in games mm. you guys don't have a newsletter yet right not yet no. Yeah, yeah, you should have a Substack or something going on. So. Yeah, we've been thinking would, a lot about you're, it. You're I would subscribe. I would subscribe immediately, and I think like a lot of other people would do it. We, we'd have a subscriber, Aaron. We'd have yeah, a subscriber. yeah, first one. Yeah, Just open it. I have a that's, that, that's the uh, that's our first ad campaign. It's like Joachim subscribed to it. Why haven't you? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Do it. All right, guys. This was so much fun. Let's do another episode at some point. There's Definitely. so much to talk. So heck yeah! Thank yeah, you thank for you. graciously having us on and joining us on ours, man. It was it's like good, such a a thought provoking time spent to to talk to you about all these things. And uh, sure. I, I love the way you you see the world and think about things. It makes me happy that there's there's folks out there like you that are that that are involved in the spinning up of new companies and helping them like figure this yeah. stuff out early on that like that excites me as an idea so i, I just want to express my gratitude for all of that thank so. you thank you so much yeah yeah i, I i'm so, so happy to discover what you guys are doing as well now so yeah this, there's gonna be a lot of things we can collaborate on in the future Heck yeah. sure. oh that's awesome yeah but yeah like have a have a good day there at your end and i'll speak to you soon yeah have thank a good you one. sleep well thanks bye Thanks again to my guests for joining this show. If you have time, please go and sign up to our newsletter at EliteGameDevelopers.com slash newsletter. Since every Friday morning, I send out a piece on gaming startups, what I've experienced recently as an investor, things that I'm seeing and thinking about. I really want to share a lot to you guys. So if you have time, please subscribe to the newsletter. That would be awesome. And I'll see you next week on the podcast. Take care. Bye-bye.